0: there's going to be a tendency for them to try to to solve all problems with more intensity. But that's not going to be a good solution. So you're going to want, if I'm coaching them, I'm going to really work on, you know, helping them to be patient and to make sure that the low intensity sessions are exactly that, that we've got the heart rate on, that we're actually learning how to calibrate these sessions and getting comfortable going longer at these low intensity sessions. And then we're going to, make sure that our our high intensity sessions are in that that correct zone where they don't go over the top they don't go into the you know the very highest intensity but they keep it around uh the 90 percent that we've talked
1: about that traplum show 177 Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Steven Seiler. Steven is a sports scientist, a researcher, and a consultant with various high performance sports entities. He is uh, American but lives in Norway and has done so for many many years, I f- believe close to 25 years or so and uh, he is most famous probably for his research in the realm of polarized training. You could almost say that he's the, the godfather of it and at least his research has definitely paved the way the way for it to become more well known in, in the mainstream endurance sports media. So it's a great honor to have Stephen on and uh, we can just scratch the surface really in this episode because we could have talked for hours really. My, I didn't even get to have the questions and topics I wanted to talk about, but it's important to really get clear with the basics and the most important stuff and not get too hung up on the smaller details that really aren't of uh, as much importance or really very insignificant importance compared to uh, to the big basics, the, the big rocks when it comes to, to training. So, so I think that we managed to cover all the most important things in this episode, which I'm very happy about. Before we get into the interview big thanks of course to our sponsors Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration makes electrolytes that help you get hydrated and stay hydrated and that is of course important for you if you're going to be uh, losing a lot of sweat which you are usually when you are doing endurance sports but especially in long races And even more so when the races are done in hot conditions, when you will be losing even more sweat and therefore more electrolytes and more sodium in particular. Uh, If you want to maintain performance, then you need to make sure that you have your electrolyte balance in check. So that's what Precision Hydration can help you with. And the best way to get started is to take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com. And that will give you an individual hydration strategy for your racing and training. And you can try your first box of precision hydration for free with the promo code that show, all one word, all caps. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world leaders in wetsuits, trisuits, apparel, and high-performance eyewear. And uh, I just yesterday got an email from Roka at their Newsletter that I'm subscribing to, and uh, actually very exciting news in that email because they have launched a line of uh, of glasses that are blue light blocking. Which uh, I'm sure you're aware. That the last couple of years or so, these different blue light filter glasses have become more popular for good reason because that uh, can have a big impact on sleep duration and quality. If you are spending time in front of screens before bedtime and uh, melatonin levels are uh, affected, so Roka has uh, launched a line of blue light blocking glasses, and they re- look really, really good. They don't look anything like the goofy ones that that you can buy off of Amazon. They actually look like really glasses that you could wear anywhere. So, uh, so I like that they're not they're not actually uh, colored. They're, they're just looking like regular glasses. So that's really cool news from Roka again on the eyewear side of things which they are really pushing a lot and uh, so definitely check that out if you haven't already both the uh, sunglasses for various endurance and action-adventure sports uh, but uh, also of course their wetsuits which is where it all started with uh, building the world's fastest wetsuit and then uh, branching out into tri-suits, swimskins, buoyancy shorts etc all designed to make you faster so check them out on roca.com and use the promo code TTS, all caps, to take 20% off your entire order. All right, we're almost ready to dive into the interview, but just a few definitions here before so that you can stay with us if you're not quite as as familiar with the, the I guess the physiological terms that we're going to be using and, and different uh, lingo, polarized training lingo that that's going on here, or physiology lingo I should say, not polarized training lingo. But we t- we talk about uh, three zone and five zone models for training here, and and these are just different ways to skin a cat of training in different intensity zones in polarized training, especially in the research, it has commonly been done in a free zone model so that means one low intensity zone one mid zone or the threshold zone which is sort of like in between Uh, so between your first lactate threshold or your lactate turn point and the second lactate threshold which is what we most commonly think of as the threshold, or most athletes think of it as the threshold anyway. And uh, you can use FTP as a proxy for that second threshold. So the second zone in the free zone model lies in between these two thresholds. So between low intensity and high intensity. So it's moderate intensity, put simply, or threshold is the term that is used, again, in the scientific lingo for for this this intensity zone. And then the third zone in that model lies uh, above your uh, your lactate threshold the second second lactate threshold or second ventilatory threshold if you measure it that way so essentially you could have the lt1 lactate threshold one or vt1 ventilatory threshold one they demarcate uh, the zone one and zone two in that model and lt2 or vt2 they demarcate uh, zone two from zone three in that model and that second threshold that's again what we commonly refer to as threshold or ftp Uh, so uh, so that's uh, i guess the basic knowledge that you need to keep up with with the discussion here the five the five zone model i should say lies on top of those three zones or you can you can sort of uh, i guess interpolate so zone one the recovery zone would be like the low zone one in the free zone model and zone two in the five zone model. They would still be low intensity. So they would, the top of zone two in the five zone model would be basically the top of zone one in a free zone model. And the zone three in a five zone model would, would be zone two in the free zone model. Uh, and zone four and zone five, they would be the lower part and the higher part of zone three in the free zone model. This is more or less how it goes. There there are some nuances to this, but for all intents and purposes, we can, we can use this these definitions to dive into discussion. All right, so with the definitions clear and out of the way, let's dive into the interview with Dr. Stephen Seiler. Today's guest on That Triathlon Show is uh, Stephen Seiler. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to That Triathlon Show. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure and uh, you're probably perhaps the most requested guest that, that I get uh, emails and uh, social media messages about that. Hey, you should bring Steven Seiler on the podcast to talk about polarized training. And, and obviously you have been doing a lot of other great research as well. But since we have a limited amount of time, we'll focus this discussion on polarized training. So. Let's. I think that the most listeners are familiar with who you are, and you introduced yourself on plenty of other podcasts that we'll link to as well. So let's just jump into the main topic. And can you give us an overview of what polarized training is? Uh, yeah, th- th- what it comes down
0: to is that we know that if you want to be really good in endurance, you have to train a lot. Uh, that is the fundamental... Universal characteristic we see across the disciplines is is that there's a, lo- a high volume of training. We've basically never seen a a gold medalist that was able to get able to do it on three days a week. To put it that way. Uh, so then the question becomes, okay, you need a high volume of training. Uh, we also know that uh, we need some intensity, and the question then becomes, well, how do we balance that out in a sustainable way? And what we've seen from different sports disciplines is uh, what tends to characterize or what almost always characterizes these gold medal winning athletes from rowing, from ski, cross country skiing, cycling, and so forth is they're actually doing a large percentage of that total volume of training at what is for them a, a fairly low intensity that is below their first lactate turn point we might say to put a physiological term on it so they're collecting a lot of hours at uh comfortable you know reasonably comfortable intensity for them Uh, and we've we've put some numbers on that we've we've put numbers on it both in terms of percentage of training sessions and said it's somewhere around 80% of their training sessions tend to be at this lower intensity. And we've said that if you measure it as time in zone based on heart rate, it may actually look more like 90% of their total time is at this low intensity.
1: What is your preferred and, way of quantifying it? Do you think there, any one of those methods is better than the other, or should you use both in combination? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think
0: f- physiologically, I think it probably is more useful to think in terms of sessions. To think in term because it is the it's the training session or that day that you make stressful. The, you know, the entire period of time uh, is going to be changed by that big hormonal response, that big stress response that you induce if you work at really high intensity. So I think in terms of understanding the nature of polarized training and what we're trying to achieve, it's probably better to think in terms of sessions that, you know, certain days I'm trying to avoid um, triggering a big stress response. I'm trying to stay under the stress radar, you might say, and just collect minutes with good metabolic flux and good signaling for uh, adaptation, but not a big stress response. And then other days, I'm going to turn that on. And, and that's what we see, you know, with these elite athletes is, is they have tremendous uh, intensity discipline. So. Sometimes it's appropriate to use heart rate to, to kind of see how things are looking. And sometimes I think it's, it's appropriate to just put the training sessions in categories or in, in a way in boxes, you know, the low intensity box, the middle intensity box and the high intensity box. And then, and then add it up over time and see, you know, am I getting this distribution right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. And, uh, as you said, you have researched this in a lot of, elite athletes across different disciplines. Can you discuss this at the evidence base a bit more? Like how much research has been done and and also how do these findings scale down from the elites to to the amateurs and more less less well trained athletes?
0: Right. Yeah, so back when I first started looking at this, I, I was I, the first. <laughs> I was kind of struck by some observations I was making here in Norway, and then I came across a. I was asked to be a reviewer of a study of, uh, Af- of uh, elite African uh, or, or Kenyan distance runners, and and they were training. They were marathoners, and. What emerged when I looked at the data, it it wasn't the focus of the authors, but when I looked at their data, I said, wow, you know, about 80% of their kilometers are actually below marathon pace. And then about, if I recall, it was more like 18% or so was above, was faster than marathon pace. And, and, And a really small percentage was actually at marathon pace, which was their race distance. Uh, and so this really was interesting to me, uh, because at the same time I was hearing, uh, from national team coaches in Norway that were, they're coaching the, the best cross country skiers in the world with huge VO2 max values. And they were saying, ah, thre- working at the threshold is too much pain for too little gain. And so they were, I said, well, well, well," that really surprised me because I was kind of trained to believe that threshold training was, was the most efficient way to do things. And that wasn't what I was hearing and seeing. And so then we started collecting data uh, to actually quantify what was happening in cross country skiers. Uh, We started with juniors and then we had good case data from Olympic gold medalists that we quantified with the help of uh, the Olympic Federation here and a, and a man named Espen Tunnison, who I worked with. And, and so we, we started really digging into this across a number of different disciplines. Um, and then uh, ultimately we started seeing this very consistent pattern, this this polarization. Now I have to say that you know, in the early studies we did with the skiers and with rowers, it was very clear. It was a very clear polarization, meaning that there was a lot of training at low intensity. And then there was quite a bit of training at above the lactate threshold, and very little at the threshold. Very little in that zone two range of a three zone model. So it was a clear, like a Nike swoosh, if you if you know what I'm saying. In terms of if you were to draw a curve, uh, there was a clear nadir in the in the zone two area where there just wasn't much of that happening. Uh, and so that's why I coined the term polarized training model. Now. Since then, of you know, there are other groups where that clear distinction between you know the amount in zone two and the amount in zone three has been let, you know it hasn't been as clear. But what's always there is a big volume of zone one training, and then exactly how the athletes solve the zone two zone three distribution, you know, it varies a little bit depending on their their competition distance. Uh, some some technical issues with their sport and so forth. So, just so we have that in mind, uh, the term polarized has come to, you know, live a life of its own. But what is what is very clear and fundamental is is that the best athletes in endurance spend a lot of their time at an intensity that's below the the first lactate turn point. They spend a
1: lot of time uh, at uh, a low intensity. Yeah, and and to give some context here for listeners that uh, maybe are not familiar with your free zone model that you discuss here, in a five zone model that is quite common as well, that would mean that a lot of that time would be in in zones one and two, and and Correct. that would be the the eighty percent of sessions or or ninety percent of of heart rate uh, right. time in zone in, in terms of heart rate. Um, can you discuss a bit more? That, because it's interesting what you mentioned there with how that distribution of intensity in zone 2 and 3 in your free zone model, how it differs and how you started to find some some differences and not always completely polarized in, in some other di- different disciplines depending on events. Can you, can you elaborate a bit on that and uh, in which sports and or events do you tend to see differences from that Original polarized model that you found in the skiers.
0: Well, you know, if you take rowers, they compete over six, seven minutes, so their competition is actually at basically at VO2 max or or above in terms of intensity, and they are really polarized in their training. They just don't do much threshold training. Um, cross country skiers are also very careful in their training. They do a lot of low intensity, and then they they will apply you know, the zone three or they, they use a five zone model. So in a five zone model, they tend to do a lot of zone four. Now, but if you go to, uh, you, you know, you guys are triathlon, Olympic triathlon or particularly Ironman, then, then I can see, and we see some evidence that, that distribution may be more uh what we might call pyramidal, where you've got it kind of steps down from you know eighty percent at high t- at low intensity and then maybe uh ten and ten or twelve and eight percent you know at zone two and zone three so so there's different ways of skinning this cat and and one thing that's important to say is is that we've done some experimental work where we've had trained athletes come in and do different training sessions either clearly in zone one clearly in zone two or clearly in zone three and then we've measured their recovery using heart rate variability to try to see what you know how do they recover from a a one hour zone one session a a two hour zone one session a uh, 30 minute active zone two session you know or with 30 minutes of threshold work or an interval session you know, with the typical uh kind of VO2 max intervals. And when we did that, we actually could not distinguish the recovery between zone two and zone three. That is to say that in both cases, when they did these these harder sessions, there had they had a delayed recovery as be- measured with heart rate variability. Whereas when it was just zone one, they recovered very quickly. So we start to get into some questions regarding, you know, zone two and three, how different are they really? Uh, or, you know, do we trigger a stress response with the zone two just as much as zone three or uh, or enough that if we're going to go ahead and do zone two, we might as well work a little harder? Uh, so, so those are where some of these questions come in. Uh, and there's, you know, we have to Keep in mind that the, the signal for adaptation and the stress that we impose on our, our athlete or, or on the body is not just a function of intensity; it's also a fu- it's intensity times duration. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah it does. And uh, I guess one of the concepts there that, that relates to this is you've talked about how uh, the signal, the signaling, o- often seems to be related to when you do these more high-intense high-intensity sessions is often related to the number of minutes that you accumulate. So you also have talked about how those really hard, uh, short intervals are not necessarily always always the best, but I guess that's where the difference between disciplines like the rowers that do six-minute races and the triathletes that do one-hour to eight-hour races at the elite end with the difference between the sprint and the Ironman comes, comes into play. Uh, so uh, perhaps you can talk a little bit about about that and how you would view the different type of intense sessions that you might do based on what your goal event is
0: right well we've done a, quite a bit of work we've both you know looked at how the athletes actually train how they kind of self-organize over time their own training process and then we've done experimental studies and both kind of go in the same direction and that is that uh, for the high intensity you know the hit Training sessions, we tend to see very good results and kind of a sustainable level of stress by uh, being at the low end of zone three or in a five zone model, actually in what we call zone four instead of zone five or at the upper end. Meaning, in, in practice, what that actually will mean is that our athletes tend to choose to collect more minutes at around 90% of heart rate max, 91, 2, and not go all the way up into that really, you know, the, the danger zone where they may be at 95, 96% of heart rate max, blood lactate 10 plus, you know, they tend to avoid doing that very often. And, and the, the adaptations seem to occur quite nicely by collecting 30, 40 minutes at 90%. And and the recovery seems to happen a bit faster. It's easier for them to come back the next day, and that's
1: important. Uh, I think you know, this this is this is something that I've seen and and heard when when interviewing a lot of the greatest triathlon coaches around that that in triathlon, whether it's it's long distance or short distance, that doesn't really matter. Uh, they do seem to favor working the zone four in a five zone model compared to to zone five. For for example uh your your colleague uh, over there in norway uh, aril Tweiten was uh, was mm. the guest here in in a past episode and, and they do a lot of work right around that uh, second lactate like, the threshold the lt2 right. so right. perhaps even a l- little bit lower than than 90% might be 88% of heart rate max or or something Something
0: like right. that, So Yeah, and and, and in eight, you, you may end up you may start at eighty eight and end up at ninety two in the course of a workout. We have to remember there's some drift that tends to happen. So, uh, yes, yeah, so, so it's in that area, upper end of zone. You know, I, we have to kind of agree to either talk five zone or three zone uh, <laughs> in this talk. But if we're going to stick with three, then uh, then I would say that the athletes tend to spend time. Right around that transition from zone two to three, just, you know, and often just on the three side, not too far over. And then they collect minutes, you know, and and a really tough interval session for, for these guys might actually, they may collect 60 minutes, uh, but that would be a very tough session. It wouldn't be a typical one. Uh, one of our gold medalist rowers, a guy named Olaf Tufta. That was his bread and butter session was six times 10 minutes at essentially 90%. Uh, he did that 27 times in the year leading up to a gold medal. Uh, so that was a kind of a just a standard zone four session for him. And that's, you know, that's a lot of minutes to collect at that heart rate. Uh, I think more typically it would be around 30 to 40 and that's, that's kind of what we've prescribed pretty often is, say, four times eight minutes or five times eight minutes. Uh, it would be a typical example that I use a lot and that I prescribe for my own daughter who's a runner.
1: Yeah, yeah. That, that uh, definitely makes sense. Uh, if we talk a little bit about why this works, like you've alluded to a few things already, but but if we wrap it up, like what, why is this model, and regardless of how we skew the uh, the higher intensity zones, but the fact that that large amount of low-intensity training is always there in the elite athletes. What, what's the reason that this works better than having slightly less work at the low-intensity and slightly more at the high high-intensity side of things?
0: Well, I think... A number of things. One is that we tend to overestimate the importance of the high-intensity training, and we tend to think that it causes that there's just very distinct adaptations. But the research sh- does not support that. There's a lot of overlapping uh, in the adaptive uh, spectrum, and 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 if you do enough minutes of low-intensity training, it it will also improve your VO2 max. For example, uh, we've seen that. Uh, in, in, in top skiers, they, you know, <laughs> as young athletes, they increased their volume and their VO2 max went up and they didn't increase the amount of high intensity training. So there, that's one issue is that we kind of tend to ascribe a bit too much specificity to these different intensities. That's really not there because it is always a function of intensity times duration. Um, and there's different ways of, of, generating that signal. Now, the other issue is that we do have good data that shows that when you get above the threshold, you start to induce some hormonal responses. You start to induce a a stress response that you don't see at the lower intensities. And that stress response is, is costly to absorb and to recover from if it happens too often. So one of the best ways to overtrain an athlete is just to uh, train them kind of m- middle hard regularly, you know, and, dev- and have this monotone signal where they're they're getting pushed into their threshold every day. That's a great way to stimulate an overtraining <laughs> response you know, or an over. Uh, uh, you know, and just to make them stagnate it at best and get overtrained at worst. That's been done with experimental studies on horses, on humans. So that's something we've learned is that if you want to overtrain an athlete, just create a monotone stress that's kind of right around their threshold and do it every day, and you'll put them in a bind pretty fast. Uh, you can do the same thing to a horse. But if you want to keep them healthy and if you want to keep their maintain their ability to both mobilize a big, uh, you know, high-intensity response when they need to, but at the same time have that, you know, good metabolic control at low intensities, then you need to distribute the work. Uh, it seems like the way we've been talking about with a lot of low-intensity and then periodic bouts of high-intensity. So
1: and when you yeah and when you say that uh talk about that overtraining and stagnation at best when you train at your threshold you're talking about as soon as you're going over that first lactate turn point you you trigger that larger stress response response so so it's actually something that is not necessarily super uncomfortable so for many age group athletes uh, which uh, i think we'll get into next you probably see that uh that these athletes uh i guess uh accidentally train there almost all the time. Is, is that correct?
0: I think you're right. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, that's the most common mistake that is happening is that these, you know, athletes, amateur athletes that don't have a lot of time to train, uh, they're going out and, you know, doing a 45-minute or a one-hour uh, a, a ride or a run, and they're pretty much right around threshold or even above you know, from the first minute and it feels pretty good. You know, they can do it, but if you know, they just kind of get stuck there. And I've even used the term, uh, the training intensity black hole. It has, we have a tendency to get sucked into that middle intensity, uh, because it doesn't feel too bad. You can do it, uh, so that the easy sessions tend to get pushed a little harder than they should be. And then you're not quite recovered when you need to do a high-intensity session. So the high-intensity sessions are not quite as hard as they should be, and things fall towards the middle. Uh, and that is the classic mistake that amateurs make.
1: Should then, if we talk about amateurs that have more limited time to train, so some might be as low as five hours per week, especially perhaps single-sport athletes like runners. For mm-hmm. athletes, five hours is quite quite low but it's definitely a lot of age group athletes train around that time but perhaps a a quite common amount of of hours for age group athletes train is around eight hours per week or so eight to nine hours so so how does uh does it change anything with the distribution of high low intensity for for amateur athletes or or is it is it the same and why how (laughs) Uh, are is there is the answer that you'll give what what it is
0: yeah, the studies that we've done suggest that this works. It does scale down, so that the the best practice of the elites scales down to the the non-elites, and and they can really benefit from uh, learning that discipline and keeping low-intensity sessions low, and then having the uh, you know being ready to and mobi- be able to mobilize when they need to do high-quality sessions. Uh, so so that we've seen experimentally that that model works it scales down to the eight hour a week athlete and may, probably also even the five hour a week athlete uh, and but then the other thing is you know we if you tell me hey I've got six hours a week and that's all I got then I can also think a bit about saying okay what do you, how do you do six hours well I, I do an hour a day okay let's think about actually, doubling up and, and on one of those days making it a two-hour session and then we'll take a day off you can get your work done but now i'm going to generate us a, a better signal for adaptation by stretching that low intensity session that you normally use an hour on i want it to be a two-hour session i want it to be two and a half you know so i want low intensity sessions to get longer and if i have to give up if i have to say all right you take a day free so that you get you you achieve that on your 6 hour time budget then that's what i'll do i'll reassign that time to try to get better low intensity sessions as well as the good
1: zone 3 sessions does that make sense it does yeah i think you you talked about uh, like you have intensive training but then you have extensive training as well and and exactly. that's uh, the, the extensive training when you when you try to stretch it out and I, actually i have a personal example i've been uh, these these last couple of months i've been really focusing on on my long rides and uh, getting rid more of 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 a lot of the the intensity but really trying to extend those long rides so i do a lot of four or five hour rides which is typical for ironman athletes and i'm focusing only on half ironman but i've seen great results with with just doing over distance rides like much longer than than what would be typical for for half Ironman athletes so uh, so that's uh, just a personal example and and I feel that it's it's working really well I, I get a good response from those really long rides
0: yeah well that's good and, and 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 that's what we see and so uh, it, whether it's running you know for my my daughter is preparing for a half marathon and you know she's doing 2 hour long runs and 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 just that same with the exact same goal is just to build durability to build metabolic uh, you know just to be comfortable and then as we start to peak and maybe as you begin to peak for a performance, then you're going to combine the long and the hard, you know, and, and maybe do a couple of hours of riding before you put in the hour high intensity to try to really uh, get, you know, get comfortably uncomfortable with that reality of having to go hard when you're already tired. Yeah, that's that's
1: exactly the plan.
0: <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and you know that makes sense. So we so we have to think of stretching ourselves both in duration and in intensity with different kinds of workouts, and then bringing it together in the competition.
1: Yeah. Uh, so so for in in practice, then if we we talked a little bit about how to dis- distribute the hours in the week and and still maintaining that large volume of low intensity, but. Since we also know now that uh, a lot of athletes will be training too hard in, that, in those low-intensity workouts, I think one of the most important things with this episode is to establish how to make sure that, that the athletes don't go too hard when they're supposed to go easy. So, so what, some important things that we need to discuss then is like how to set the training zones and, and how to then follow and execute the workouts according to those, those zones. So, so let's talk a little bit about that and perhaps start around testing and, and how to establish those zones?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think obviously most people don't have access to these fancy laboratory testing. They probably don't even have access to blood lactate, but they have heart rate, uh, they have speed, they have power, uh, and they have perception. They have their own perceptual uh calibration of what something feels like. And so what we need to do is ultimately calibrate their perception better than maybe it tends to be uh, with the tools that are uh, that are available. Now, if I'm working with an athlete and I don't have a laboratory, but I've got the heart rate, I've got some a reasonable place to get good power and speed measurements, then one thing I'm going to want to do is I want to know what their actual heart rate max is. You'd be surprised how many athletes don't really know uh, and they say, well, I guess it's 220 minus age. Wrong. Uh, that's a good way to mess things up because 220 minus age or 207 minus 0.8 times age, whichever one you use, is, it works reasonably well at the population level. It's terribly unreliable at the individual level. Uh, so that's one of the first things we need to get across is it, you, the, the athlete needs to have a reasonable idea of what their, what their actual heart rate max is. And it'll probably be different for cycling than running and swimming. All three will be different because they're movement-specific. Typically, for example, running will give the highest heart rate max. And then we tend to call the others heart rate peak. So the cycling heart rate peak might be five, seven beats lower than heart rate max in running. And then the swimming will tend to be the lowest of the three. So that's step one is let's, let's kind of know what our heart rate max is or, or heart rate peak for these different modalities. And usually the way you can get that is through just a, you know, a, a quite hard, uh, say, six minute bout where you warm up well. You can even do an interval session and then just use one of the intervals and push it to max to get a reasonable training heart rate peak. Okay. Does that make sense? Got it. Yep. 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 And then, you know, that sets at least the upper end of our aerobic uh, scale. That's the top end of zone three is is up at heart rate max. And then things get trickier. You know, if, if I wanted to actually find the first lactate turn point, then I, I kind of need to measure lactate. Um but as a guess, as a reasonable, educated guess, I'm going to say f- keep it below 75% heart rate peak for zone one.
1: Yep, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Okay, and that'll be that'll be reasonably safe.
1: And that, as a, as that a, means, just to clarify, that means keep it below. So that doesn't mean start at that level and then you go, right. go go higher and higher through the session, which I think is a quite quite a common mistake when you give heart rate guidelines to, to athletes. So and, start significantly lower if you if you know that your heart rate tends to, to rise with uh, with the duration of the session.
0: And, and actually you're touching on something that's important is that if you really are clearly in zone one, then you should not see a big drift in the heart rate. That the heart rate you have after 15 minutes should be pretty close to the heart rate you have or, you know, at 60 minutes. And if you're, but if you're drifting a lot up, then there's a good chance you're actually working at a higher intensity than you think you are. You're actually in your, at your threshold because then we'll start to see that drift. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. And it brings about the question, if that happens, even when the athlete feels that they're going really, really slow, would that also potentially show up in a lactate test if the athlete goes to a lab that they don't really have that first lactate turn point, but lactate just rises from the start? We, we don't have that flat plateau That's, at the beginning. That,
0: That's what we see is when you bring in people that don't have the good metabolic control that have tended to do a lot of stuff at their threshold, that they're at two and a half millimolar from the first stage in the test. You know, they just don't have the low lactate starting point. Whereas when we bring in the high, you know, the elite endurance athlete, they'll often be below one millimolar. Uh, and they may even go down from state, you know, from the first load to the second. They, their lactate may actually decline, uh, before it, before it eventually starts coming up again. So they have really good metabolic control. Uh, but the good news is that, you know, all is not lost <laughs> because when we take these amateurs and get them to, to train in a disciplined way for some weeks, it gets better. And that lactate profile starts to flatten out, starts to look more like what we see with a well trained athlete. So it does, you know, it doesn't take years. You can achieve it in, in, in a couple of months uh, of, of just good training, the, the right kind of training. You can see big changes where it becomes much more comfortable to do those low intensity uh, runs and rides.
1: And do you think, because I, I get some questions from people that that really, as soon as they take the first step on, on running especially, I think this is the case, that their their heart rate is well above where it should be uh, for uh, the, that estimated 75% of, of heart rate max. And yeah. uh, what should they do if they really cannot run or they feel they cannot run at a low enough intensity to keep heart rate down? Do you think that that's just... Well, you think you cannot run, but you should be running even slower. And it is possible. It might not feel the same, but you can do it. Or should you do like run walk or or what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, there's no shame in walking up a hill. Uh, In fact, that was one one of the first observations I made in Norway that really got me started on all of this that I've been doing for 15 years was I watched a female athlete who I had Seen in the lab, I knew she had a VO2 max of 65 mLs per kg, which is good. That's a high value for females. Her, her sister was an Olympic silver medalist in the cross-country skiing. So I knew this woman, young woman, was a good endurance athlete, and I watched her come to the bottom of a steep hill and start walking up that hill. And I was thinking, what in the heck is going on? But what I learned was that she, she was doing a low intensity session that day. She was gonna, she was running for a couple of hours and she just was disciplined. She didn't run up the hill. She ran fast up the hill, kept her heart rate stable, or I mean, walked fast up the hill, kept her heart rate stable and kept going. Uh, and that was a big aha experience for me. Uh, and, and I think we need to remember that training is training. And don't be afraid to be disciplined to, you know, you get to that steep hill, you walk up the hill because you have a plan that day. You, you're doing a two hour run and you want to keep it at low intensity. Follow your plan and let the others run by you and smile because you know what you're doing. That's, that's what we've seen with elite athletes as well is that they, they know what they're good for and they don't need to compete every day. They know what they're, the, what, you know what they're worth when it really matters. And so, if some amateur runs by them when they're doing a three-hour low-intensity run, more power to them. No worries. Check the ego out
1: the door. That's important.
0: Yeah, you know, because they know that man. If this was a race, you know, I, you know, because their engine, they're barely. Their engine is is running at 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 half power, and that's the per. That's where it needs to be that day. Uh, so that, that discipline up in your head of not getting half-wheeled into a, you know, a hard session or uh, running up the hills, is you know, every hill you see is a hill you got to see if you can power up. Uh, learning that, boy, it's a really tough lesson for, especially for us men. The women tend to be better at it. They tend to be more disciplined. But the guys like us and me, and I believe me, I've done everything you can do wrong on that account. Uh, learning that discipline is going to be one of the best things you'll ever do. Uh, and you will end up going faster. Uh, slower can make you faster.
1: Yeah. And uh, so moving on to, to the second lactate threshold, uh, how do you estimate that if you, you don't have access to that lactate test?
0: <sighs> well, what I've st- when I've talked to cyclists, what I've told them to do, and they don't all like it, I said do an, an hour of power.
1: Oh yes, that uh, meaning, sounds
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> meaning, you know, the sixty just a sixty minute test, and take your take your average power for the sixty minutes, and that that we're going to put that and call that your your uh, zone two threshold. So that's going to be the threshold between two and three, or the 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 marker. Uh, like for me right now, it's uh, two hundred eighty six watts. Uh, I'm a 53 year old guy, so I don't have much to brag about, but that, but I know what it is because I've done the hour, uh, and I'm trying to get it up to 300 Watts, you know, for an hour. Uh, but research shows that well-trained subjects, they can hold maximum lactate steady state for an hour. So it's a reasonable surrogate measure of maximum lactate steady state. Now it's tough. And and what I can say is, if man, if that if you say, oh, that hour that is just awful, I want to just say, suck it up, you know, because you're you're an endurance athlete. But you, I can also say, well, do that once, and at the same time, within a close proximity, do a 20 or a 30 minute test and figure out what your personal calibration is. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes, that makes absolute sense. So rather than use some arbitrary 95%, which I think for a very, very small uh, small part of athletes would be the case, but actually it's probably closer to 90% for most, but I you agree. figure out what your percentage is. Right. So
0: so I can live with that, that you do the one, you know, you don't do that 60-minute very often, but that you then have it calibrated against your 20- or 30-minute uh, test. And then, you know, your personal, your personal uh, calibration. Uh, But at any rate, if we agree on that, then we'll call that FTP and we'll say that that is your zone two, three uh, demarcation. That's that second threshold. Okay. Yeah. So that's that would be my poor person's. You know, I, I've in cycling, I've I've talked about six minute and sixty minute tests as reasonable proxies for maximum aerobic power and for the the maximum lactate steady state or FTP. Six minute, sixty minute. Yeah, um,
1: that makes sense. And what, and what about what about heart mind. rate in in that sixty minute test or or in general heart rate for for the Uh, MLSS, maximum lactate steady state. What's your take on that?
0: Well, as a reasonable estimate, I would say if you do an hour of power, your average heart rate for that hour will probably end up being around 90% of max. You know, it may be 88, it may be 91, but it'll be about 90. Uh, For me, when I do an hour of power, and I've done it about four times in the last uh, six months or so. It, if, if I'm at 90% of heart rate max at 20 minutes in, I can hang on. That's what I found out <laughs> is that I'm, then I'm, I'm paced to be able to survive at that power. Uh, Cause I keep, I have a really flat power. You know, when I start at, you know, like this last test, 286, I mean, I'm on that the whole way. Uh, so at 20 minutes, you kind of know you feel like is this going to be doable or is this not going to happen you know <laughs> and and if i'm if if i'm at 90% then then i've got a decent chance of making it to the end but it's going to drift okay. up that that heart rate's going to drift up and for me you know i'm by the end i'm at 95% of of heart rate peak i'm hurting but you know but that's drift that's that's heart rate drift it's not what it would be if I were fresh in a six minute bout. Uh, So, so that's my, my general uh, advice would say, you can expect to have an average heart rate for that hour of about 90. You know, the first 15 minutes feel pretty good, but then it starts, you start feeling, you know, (laughs) then the reality starts setting in. The first 15 minutes should feel reasonably good in an hour of power.
1: If, if yeah I, i've done it i've done it twice personally uh, as well the hour of power but both of those times have been out on the road i have a hard time imagining doing an hour of power on the trainer but i'm, I'm pretty sure that that's what you do am i right it, it
0: is yeah because i'm kind of a geek and i like to have the data so the, so you know and, and it's it's an existential kind of experience you just i i kind of i kind of like getting geared up for it and i like I like having that conversation with between brain and body uh, that of course you you triathletes have a, on during the race is I think we have to get comfortable with that with with that you know, and i one of the things I learned through that is just to to pre- to be prepared to know you know, usually for me, the moment of truth comes around two thirds of the way in. You know, and the body is just starting to say, do you really need to do this? You know, this hurts. Uh, and and then having having an answer ready, you know, knowing, okay, I know this is going to, I know my body is going to start revol- revolting. It's going to start asking me to quit. And I need to have a, a strategy, a mental strategy for how I'm going to get past that, uh, that period, and then get on to the other side of it. Because usually what happens is you get over to the other side where it feels it feels like you're kind of starting to go downhill towards the finish. Uh, so I think it's a part of the training process. I think it's good for us to to deal with this in training a, a bit and uh, learn some strategy, learn some tactics for how we're going to deal and what we're going to say to ourselves and so forth to get past that, that you know, dark Dark part of the hour.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I, th- I think that one one very important takeaway here is that the twenty minute tests with the ninety five percent coefficient. I, I definitely think that that is uh, a problem in uh, in cycling and triathlon training in in general because it it over inflates the uh, the FTP uh, in in air quotes so massively for for some people, especially especially those athletes that that don't have that good aerobic base so they can yeah. rely so much on anaerobic energy not not, not so much but com- relatively speaking compared to the to the yeah. more well trained athletes that it it really overinflates the the threshold that you're trying to estimate to get some sort of like a physiological marker of of where you are
0: I, I agree. And, and and that's a much more s- problematic error. It's going to, because it's going to have downstream effects on your training than if you slightly underestimate your threshold. You know, if I, if my real threshold was 295 and I actually estimate 285, that's okay. But if I'm missing it on the, you know, if I'm overestimating by 20 watts, that's going to end up m- messing things up because I'm going to tend to also think that I am at Low intensity when I am at threshold intensity. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the downstream effects are just exactly the wrong effects, and and unfortunately, guys, this just tends to be what we do. Is we want those bigger numbers. Same thing happens in the weight room. If you if I go into a weight room with a bunch of guys and they're doing squats, I can guarantee you that they will have a tendency to cheat. They won't go down to ninety degrees, you know, but they'll put they'll get a bigger number uh for their squat and and so this happens in the weight room it happens in the you know in threshold testing and we've got to just uh try to uh try to avoid it because it ends up we end up making training mistakes it's better to let your numbers do the talking on race day because you've done good training
1: yeah and i don't know if you agree but for cycling something that uh that i think for it's such a power dominant sport these days with uh Power meters being almost ubiquitous, yes. uh, that uh, heart rate has sort of been thrown out the window, and and for quite some time I also did did it myself, just solely relying on power and percentages of power, uh, f- the threshold functional threshold power, etc. But I'm getting back into using heart rate more and more, and especially for those low intensity workouts, always making sure that the heart rate is. Uh, is uh, on point where it should be so that uh, the heart rate is low enough and that the power is low enough i want to have that safety margin because i know that it's not a problem if i uh, if i undershoot it a little bit but if i overshoot it then then that's a potential potential issue so would you sort of do the same thing using heart rate a lot in low intensity or how would yeah, you yeah I, I do power? I, I use i love
0: power and i have power on every workout i do but i also have heart rate uh, and I just keep myself honest. And and it, it turns out that for me personally, uh, if I, you know, I tend to do these low intensity sessions, usually about two hours, uh, you know, a hundred minutes to two two hours is a very typical low intensity session for me on the bike inside. And I watch heart rate and I can almost tell if I'm, if I'm where I need to be. And I'm well recovered just based on what that heart rate is. I look at the heart rate relative to kind of 200 Watts, which is my, uh, zone one kind of towards the upper end of zone one for me. And, and I can really feel, you know, or I can look at the heart rate and say, okay, I'm where I need to be. It's flat. And I, and I know that tomorrow when I do high intensity, I'm ready. I'm exactly where I want to be. So, I love power and, and don't get me wrong. I, I, it's great that we can measure it but the physiology still matters and we still need to have that calibration. and it's so easy to get to get lured into letting that power slide up uh, because it's just it feels good at first you know to go a little harder. Uh, but then we start drifting into that typical problem of every workout being kind of half hard. Uh, and that will, yeah, exactly. It won't get you where you want to be uh, down the road.
1: Yeah, I think I think that the uh, the alternative to that that is very exciting. Uh, I think personally is when you just keep your easy rides at sort of the same power as long as it feels easy enough. Uh, you you feel that you don't know that you're not overshooting it, hmm. and then you see week by week your heart rate coming down for for yeah. the same sort of power. That's yeah. that's exciting, and you can, you can see that you're adapting well to the training.
0: And the other thing you can also do is just, as we talked about, is extend these workouts. And and I find with myself, when I first started riding, again, you know, for me, an hour, that was a good low-intensity session. And then 90 minutes started to feel right. And now two hours feels right. And But for me, still, three hours feels pretty long. And so I would like to get where a three-hour ride on the bike feels easy, you know, where I am flat, that heart rate just stays flat for three hours. And so I'm, I'm slowly building durability, building this, you know, uh, I've called it biological durability. And I think that has, that pays dividends uh, down the road in the racing. Uh, So, so that's part of the adaptation process. It's not always about doing more power. It's also about being able to do the same power you know and feel comfortable with it and and now that becomes easy for you that means you've got a bigger base you've got a stronger aerobic base to work with and that's a great foundation for moving forward
1: yeah exactly and i think i don't know if uh, it may have been you that talked about it on some podcast or wherever i heard it maybe somebody else but how important that power at lt1 is such a big predictor of endurance yeah. performance uh, and especially in in events like like triathlons so we're not talking about 6 minute minute races here we're talking about longer races at least 1 hour so uh, so, so actually your power at lt2 at that second at that ftp might not matter as much necessarily as that power at, at lt1 so what you can really comfortably do for a long long time in a sustainable yeah. manner
0: yeah, I, I think and I think if we were to look at the peloton of, you know, the Pro Tour, we would see that they tend to all, you know, they tend to have a, a really high LT1. That's one of the things that distinguishes the, the the riders in general that make it to that level. And then even within that group, you'll see that the very best have just an exceptional ability to produce, uh, you know, reasonably high powers without it costing them anything. Uh you know, if we, if, if you watch the tour of Flanders, uh, this weekend, the winner, the winning time was six hours and 18 minutes. And, and about th- that last hour that athlete did, they had a lot of minutes at 400, 500 watts, peaking at 900 watts. I mean, just so, so five hours of work and then the race begins, you know. And that requires an athlete with a lot of, you know, a great base to be able to put out that world-class hour after five hours of work. And that, yeah. that's, and the only way to get that is to do the hours over time. That's the only, yeah. that's the yeah. only yeah. way we know. You can't do it with interval training. You can't, you, the only way to get to the third hour is to do the first two. You know, <laughs> uh, there are no shortcuts. The only way to get your body to the point where it gets comfortable in that fourth hour is to do four-hour workouts. You know, like you're doing. Uh, there is no shortcut there.
1: Exactly. Uh, just briefly about uh, that uh, setting the zones and for running then, or at the lt two especially because we talked about cycling the sixty minutes test, the hour of power. But for running, what do you recommend, and um, uh, for setting your zones there?
0: Well, I mean, in, in in theory, it's 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 essentially the same because the physiology is the physiology. If you if but in practical terms, again, I as long as you know, I I could see using a ten k. Yeah, 10K is going to be a bit too fast, you know, because you're going to be probably above MLSS at the end of a 10K, but it's close. You know, it's, it's, I still think it, what you can do for an hour is a pretty good measure of your, of your maximum lactate steady state also for running. But I know an hour run, that's tough. Um, so I would tend to, if it, I would probably take 10K time and then add, uh, Add some amount, but I'm a little bit unsure what if I want to say some specific value there. I have to think a little bit about that. The the it's been a lot of it's cycling. Like,
1: if, if you if you have a 10k and a half marathon time, then you could basically maybe take the the middle, whatever pace you had between <laughs> yeah. between the two. Yeah, and that's kind of where it's at. I suspect
0: for maximum lactate steady state is 10k is just a bit too fast and, and and then half marathon you're probably for most people you're a bit uh on the slow side so it, it's still in terms of the the physiology is still related to the duration and that duration is you know that 60 minute duration turns out to work pretty well as a sur- surrogate measure for what you can maintain uh, at least 40 minutes and then up to 60 minutes is where i would want to i'd want to have as a as a functional test, you know, what's the speed or the power you can hold in that range, minimum 40 minutes. I
1: I I would estimate that for a well-trained athlete, if you add five seconds per kilometer to your 10 K pace, that would be roughly, uh, roughly the 60 minute pace. And for a less well-trained athlete, perhaps you add a little bit more like seven, eight, nine seconds per kilometer.
0: And that's Just the think, thing. It's not that many seconds per kilometer. You know, the it, it, the, the range is fairly narrow in running compared to cyc- the, the cycling power. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that sounds about right.
1: Let's talk a little bit about uh, triathlon-specific considerations here. Because one thing that, uh, especially if we consider the 80% of sessions being low intensity and 20% of sessions being high intensity... That gets difficult, especially for the age groupers, sure. if you want to do some high intensity in the swim and the bike and the yep. run, because there just aren't Not enough, enough sessions in a week. week no, no. Yeah.
0: And, and here's my here's my take on that. It, I suspect that some of your even your age groupers sometimes are doing more than one session in a day. The really, uh, the, really yeah. the the really dedicated ones, and I'd say, all right, uh, that's okay. Uh, more, you know, that's great if you if you can manage that. But let's think about trying to manage the loads in the days so that I would be more comfortable with an athlete doing actually two hard sessions on one day, you know, a cycling and a run session that are both hard on the same day and then being able to have a really good low intensity or rest day after. Then spreading these hard sessions so that they seem to be doing something hard almost every day, that's going to be the problem if they if they fall into that trap. Does, does that make sense? So I would, ma- I, it does. I would, well, I would rather is, it's actually, overload a day and really have tough hard days, and then make sure we're protecting the easy days.
1: Yeah, it, this is exactly what I'm doing personally again. But but I also know that there are, for example, recently we had Joel Filial on as a guest, who's one of the, the greatest mm-hmm. triathlon coaches out there for elites. And, and they do it differently. He spreads out the intensity. So they have some intensity most days, like six days of the week, perhaps. And, and then a second and maybe a third easy session. But they, they don't stack the days that way. So I think that there's probably individual variability what works best but for me i found that what you suggest works really well with stacking intensities or doing two hard sessions mm. on one day and then making sure that the next day can be an uh, a low intensity day and a low intensity day might be a high volume day still but but it's still low intensity yeah,
0: yeah so that's that's my take on it and, and we got to remember that the the best in the game they are different beasts and one of the things that makes them great endurance athletes great triathletes is they can absorb a hell of a lot of training uh and so what they can absorb is not necessarily you know really representative for what the seven hour a week athlete can handle so that's why i think for a lot of us that stacking uh approach is a a more sustainable way to go uh because it gets tough if you're doing that many days a week with those hard sessions I wouldn't be able to handle it I wouldn't be able to survive it and I think a lot of age groupers would really struggle
1: yeah and would, what would you uh what would your perspective be on the different disciplines like would you try to follow more or less this sort of polarization or at least like let's call it 90% of Uh, timing zone in in that low intensity zone in all three different disciplines or would you be okay with doing a little bit more intensity in one discipline and what's your take on that well
0: just from a pure you know if we take the olympic distance then then obviously the run is so critical Uh, there's just no way to get around that you need to be a strong runner if you want to be a strong olympic distance performer and plus, physiologically, running is going to, you know, uh, challenge the cardiovascular system, uh, so I would tend to maybe wait a bit more f- interval sessions on running. Um, and then the other kind of depends on how, what your strengths and weaknesses are. If you're a terrible swimmer versus if you're a good swimmer, you know, your your cycling strength and so forth, but, you know, I... I uh, My fear, I'm never going to do a triathlon because I suck at swimming and I would probably be at, you know, near drowning as soon as I start swimming. So, so these issues play a role is for, you know, are you a swimmer that can actually swim at low intensity? I'm not sure. Uh, I I suspect there's a lot of swimmers, at least the early, early days when they're doing, uh, getting into the sport, they, they're probably at fairly high intensity the whole way Absolutely. in swimming. Yeah. And so for that athlete, I'm going to say let's for swimming, let's just totally focus on getting comfortable in the water, not on intensity but getting comfortable trying to let the technique carry you more and then, you know, and not flail uh, with high intensity sessions in the pool, but really work on moving your body through the water more effectively because they'll probably benefit more from that than they will from flailing at, at high intensity with bad technique. Uh, whereas, so I would probably front load or, or, you know, the, the running and the cycling a bit more than the swimming and just really try to work on uh, good swimming mechanics uh, moving through the water, good breathing, and so forth. For for the for most age groupers, unless they're really strong swimmers.
1: Let, let's take a, a concrete example here. This I think is would be quite a common uh, age group listener would perhaps do three workouts per week in swimming, biking, and running, and and that might be let's let's call it nine to ten hours in total duration. Which how many? intense workouts would you do in each discipline and and where would you do maybe a longer workout if you can uh, sort of give a an ID for just your perspective on how roughly you would structure that training week
0: well just as a starting point if we're going to kind of basically follow that 80 20 rule on sessions nine sessions i'm not going to do more than two or three hard sessions Uh, already two of nine is, is actually more than 20%, but I, you know, okay, I can live with that, but you know, three hard sessions out of nine is probably enough for an age grouper, you know, and, and, and in fact, for some, it's going to be too much. I think, you know, and, and there's going to be a tendency for them to try to, to solve all problems with more intensity. But that's not going to be a good solution. So you're going to want, if I'm coaching them, I'm going to really work on, you know, helping them to be patient and to make sure that the low intensity sessions are exactly that, that we've got the heart rate on, that we're actually learning how to calibrate these sessions and getting comfortable going longer at these low intensity sessions. And then we're going to make sure that our, our high intensity sessions are in that, that correct zone where they don't go over the top. They don't go into the, you know, the very highest intensity, but they keep it around uh, the 90% that we've talked about and collect minutes. Uh, And so, and, and, and then we can start to say, look, every week doesn't have to be the same. There's a tendency to think, well, this is the structure for the week, but you can do three interval sessions one week and only two the next, and that's fine. And you can you can front load and maybe this this week you do two running sessions and another and another one you only you do two bike sessions. Uh, so we don't need to get too trapped in that because one of the things we need to think about is that the training process is hundreds of sessions in the course of a year. And that's really worthwhile to have in the back of the head that even an age grouper that's only training only training, let's say six times a week, that's 300 sessions in a year. And so every one of those sessions is just a tiny part of the bigger picture. And I want my athlete, the way I'm going to measure the success of that season is if the plan was to achieve 300 sessions where 70, say 70 of them or 75 were going to be hard, did, were we able to achieve that? Were they able to stay healthy enough that they actually achieved those goals? That's going to be a measure of the overall success. And if, if they're staying healthy, if they're able to feel good about the hard sessions, you know, they're ready to do them and, and they have a sustainable program, then we're going to see long-term pro- progress, but, but that that's
1: a really good good point of of really stretching out the perspective that you're you're looking at your your training and and not being too too focused on the week we we tend to be all uh all consumed with the training week, but but it's actually yeah, so so much bigger than than just the week. Yeah. So so I like that that perspective and and that uh, that advice. So
0: our cross country skiers, for example, they
1: they have some of these rules of thumb
0: that they need to achieve in terms of total hours a year, and they they'll tend to say, look, we're going to need to do we, we if we're going to have a successful year, we need to get about a hundred hard sessions in per year. Now they're doing a total of five hundred sessions. 550. But they they know that as a rule of thumb, they're going to need to have 100 hard sessions a year to have the kind of fitness they need to be competitive. So that's their big picture. You know, they're aware of that big picture. And that gives you a little bit, you can relax a little bit if you get sick for three days, because you can, you know, you can say, well, don't forget, this is a long season, 500 sessions, you know, three days is not going to kill me. Uh, three days in bed or three days off. So, when we have that bigger perspective, I think it really does help to to keep that in mind. And and unfortunately, we have a tendency to think that every little detail, every you know how we micromanage these interval sessions and so forth, is going to be so critical. But I, I, I'm afraid to say I don't think the body is that sensitive to all of our neuroses. Uh, as athletes you know <laughs> so keep it simple keep it simple it turns out to be a great lesson and and let's keep in mind some of the best athletes in the world let's take kenyan runners they not all of them even own a heart rate monitor you know and they're running world class times so you don't have to overthink things
1: yeah that that is a good example an excellent example Uh, I only a couple of questions more. I know we're running a bit short on time already, but one thing that I want to ask is uh, if uh, you have to play devil's advocate against uh, all of these things, polarized training in general, and uh, like, for example, have you seen examples of of athletes that do really well with doing a lot of mid zone work? Like that's kind of zone two work doing a lot of that or, uh, or anything else? Is there any evidence out there for, uh, for athletes doing doing well with a much higher intensity load overall than than what you have prescribed here?
0: You know, I, I got to be, obviously I'm biased because I've been doing this a long time, but I really haven't. And, and, and like one of the, I was at a dinner one time with a Norwegian coach who had coached 12 world champions in four different sports. Uh, so he had a pretty good you know, basis for saying things. And he says, there is one certainty with tr- endurance training. If you want to be great, you got to train a lot. You know, there, it, that was for him. It was just, you know, that he says, but you also have to train smart. And so that's, I haven't seen these shortcut moments. Uh, I'm not saying that no one's ever achieved it. And I will say this, what I have seen is, is athletes that have a long background of doing the volume, and then maybe they're coming to the end of their career, or they have a year where they say, I'm going to try to cut my hours from a 1,000 down to 800 or 700, and they can still have some success. You know, they've got the base, they they, they know what, how their body works, and they can get away with a season, um, at, at a lower volume than they, but because they've they've done it before, they know how to get there. But even those, what we tend to see in at, at the world class level, is they're less um, they're less consistent. They start having to cherry pick when they can be good. Whereas a, a, a top class World Cup athlete that's able to produce over the course of a World Cup season. What they will generally say is, "Is I, I had a great preparation period. I got the volume in, and that's what is keeping me going through this season." So, so that's what we've seen. Uh, I, there's always going to be the exception. I'm sure we'll see it somewhere, but but it, but I wouldn't want to be. I wouldn't want to base my coaching on that.
1: I have a hypothesis that I'd be curious to hear your take on, and that is that uh, for a certain amount of time, and I don't know how long, but. I think it's very individual, like depending on your training background and your genetics and so on. Uh, athletes can see uh, good improvements when they train with uh, much more intensity, whether it's mid zone intensity or high zone intensity but But at some point uh, they will stagnate. We, we talked about stagnation before, as you say. Uh, I, I just think that the the time course is what uh, what varies a lot with. With athletes, and and then to get through that stagnation, then that's when you need to really build that that stronger base and that biological durability that you that you also mentioned. So, what what do you think about that?
0: Uh, I agree, and actually, there's a there's a wonderful case study on a a Norwegian athlete. She she ended up being the most the winning uh, the most winning cross country skier in the history of the sport on the women's side. and she was a talented athlete that won uh, a world championship already in 2005. And her coach was very uh, in favor of a lot of high-intensity training and and did some high-intensity blocks where, you know, multiple days in a row with high-intensity. And she responded to it. She won a world championship um, with this You know, she was still doing a lot of low intensity, but she was doing more high intensity than was normal in Norway, uh, quite a bit more. And she wins. But then she really was not able to keep making progress. She started to stagnate. And so uh, world champion in 2005, and she's considering quitting the sport by 2008-9. Wow. uh, Because her results have, have failed, and she's no longer on the podium very often at all. Uh, towards the end 2009 she was basically off the podium completely uh, so she had she had stagnated with this approach and she ended up having to go back to basics cut out this block high intensity work go back to that traditional model with a lot more low intensity relatively less high intensity and and she brought it back and then she had a 5 year period where she was essentially unbeatable you know, so she, it was sustainable. And for five years, she just dominated the sport. So she achieved success with a, with a kind of a high intensity loaded approach, but it she wasn't able to sustain it. And she ended up stagnating. Then she went back to this more traditional model of, of that we've been talking about and had a sustained period of success all the way to retirement or to actually the birth of a child and then retirement. Uh, and this is all documented as a case study that's published um, in, uh, I believe it's in Frontiers of Physiology. Uh, so it's, a, it's, wor- it's free. It's, it's, you can find it yourself. And, and it's, a, it's a great little insight into the career of an athlete.
1: Yeah, we we can link to that in the in the show notes, and so yep. that will be good for the listeners interested. Mm. So let's start to wrap it up here. There's a whole list of questions that you that you also have in front of you that we haven't covered yet, but but I think that we've covered the the most important things for now, and that perhaps we can revisit the topic later on with with some more uh, discussions. But uh, to To wrap up this discussion, let's just uh, go through the rapid-fire questions that I ask every guest. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports?
0: Oh, well, my all-time favorite is the textbook of work physiology by Olstron and Roldahl, which is published way back in the... Seventies, different editions, but that was my inspiration, and, and some of the key questions and the way they approach the physiology is still ins- has inspired a lot of the work I've done up to today. Uh, so I guess that's the all-time favorite um, as far as any specific source today. Um, I really, I, I'm kind of all-consuming, and I, and I, I'm not a, I don't try, I try not to get trapped into one specific book or anything like that. I just try to uh, stay on top of things and, and, uh, and uh, perhaps perhaps, Nowadays I'm a bit more on the psychology side. The physiology I feel like I you know I've got a reasonable grip on the physiology so I've I've enjoyed like I, I've read a bit from Steve Magnus recently on the passion paradox. Uh, so some of these issues about the the psych- psychological side of the training process is is interesting to me because you you know ultimately you you have to combine the two.
1: Yeah. What's a personal habit that helped you achieve success?
0: Oh, when
1: I get my head
0: wrapped around something, I I don't let go too easily. So I guess that's a, <laughs> that's a, an advantage, you know, it helps and and I just I'm passionate about this stuff. I love it, so that helps, but but I think it you, you need some endurance also in your work process, you know, because it takes time to to get good answers.
1: Yeah. And finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? in my career as an as a scientist it it, could, it it could be ssi professional or it could be endurance sports it's well, for sure uh, open in for interpretation
0: yeah for in endurance sports i did everything that i'm telling the listeners not to do i did it so i wish somebody had told me what i'm telling them right now because i, I man i just killed myself with interval training I, and i stagnated i kicked my own butt uh for sure so i wish somebody had sat me down and taught me this this whole concept of of you know the longer low intensity sessions it w- i would have had a better career for sure
1: yeah and and uh, i've also done that at uh, some different periods of my career so definitely that makes two of us that can uh can say that yeah it's there is definitely a, a limit for for how much of that you can do, and and the low intensity stuff is what is really sustainable. And, and building that, I wish we could have discussed biological durability a lot more because I'm very interested in in that and, and find it super important. But we'll say that for another time. But uh, but just to to summarize, I guess that. Building that up with low-intensity training, that's something that that we can agree is, is super, super important and, and should be one of the key take-home messages, I think, for for the listeners from this episode.
0: Yeah, I'd say I'm 50-some-odd years now, uh, old, 53, and I am handling interval sessions better today than I did when I was 25, and I think it's just because I'm not chronically fatigued. Uh, so... There is hope out for us. That's what I can say. Uh, you know, yeah, and, and, and your still 286. Go hard, but we've got we've to gotta learn when to do it and when to hold back.
1: Yeah, exactly. And your 286-watt hour of power and, and not 95% or 20-minute FTP, that also proves that what uh, you're doing is working in practice because that's uh, that's quite impressive.
0: It's getting better. I've only been cycling for about eight months, so i but I'm going to get to three hundred. That's my goal.
1: <laughs> I, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will <laughs> All okay right. thank Thank you so much, Stephen. It was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. The same. thank you. So I really hope that you enjoyed that discussion uh, since uh, Stephen has been such a requested guest I hope that it was worth the wait I certainly think that it was I have plenty of takeaways but uh, I'm going to limit it to a few of them uh, I do want to give a few uh, because uh, to I think it's important to to sort of wrap things up here with with what the uh, the things to to think about and consider with your training are and the first is uh, really easy, it's uh, doing a lot of easy training volume, that's, that's perhaps the most important thing that you, you can be doing in an, as an endurance athlete. But also remember here with this that just because you think you're doing it easy enough, it doesn't mean that you actually are necessarily. So I definitely recommend that you try to go and get a lactate test done, but if you cannot do that, go back and listen to where we defined how to set your zones and and get some estimates for where you should be training in terms of heart rate and power uh, if you if you haven't done so and then you can you can check and validate that your easy training is actually easy enough mm-hmm. the second takeaway is uh, to take that big picture view of your training rather than just the weekly microcycle view so if you're a typical age group athlete, it might feel that, well, I mean, I can only train so many hours per week, so many workouts per week. How is it possible that I can get faster if I do 80% of my workouts at a low intensity or uh, which so, I sort of agree with as a triathlete, especially it is difficult and I don't do 80% of my workouts at an easy intensity, I have to say. So perhaps for triathlete, it makes a bit more sense to, to follow that, uh, time Uh, those time-based recommendations, time-in-zone-based recommendations. Uh, Either way, it can feel that, well, if I'm only allowed to do 10% of my my time, of my workout duration, total workout duration at uh, at a high intensity, then how am I supposed to improve when I can only train eight hours per week? It helps if you look at the yearly hours that you train rather than the weekly hours. Uh, So you might be doing 300 to 400 workouts per year if you're a typical triathlete maybe 400 to 500 hours of training and then suddenly the this idea of polarized training it starts to seem a lot more conceivable i think uh, when compared to struggling to believe that that you can improve when you're looking at it from the weekly microcycle basis which makes sense right because you're not going to improve in just a week if you do a few easy workouts that that's not going to happen but when you stack them one week, one week after another, and, and you keep doing that for a year or for many years. That's when the magic happens. That's when it really happens. And that's, I think, when this idea, this concept becomes really, really valuable. When you can take a step back and take that big picture view rather than just look at your next 12-week build to your next race or your next, your next couple of months uh, that you're training for, for whatever event that you're preparing for. Next, I think it's very important to, to assess different views, opposing views, of whatever the point of discussion is. Uh, so so it was good to get Stephen's view on uh, him playing devil's advocate there on whether there is contradicting evidence. And what Stephen said there is that in terms of research, uh, not nothing that he's aware of. Uh, we talked about how anecdotally, sure, there are always... Exceptions and also you can have, you can potentially have quite a lot of success on more intensity, but perhaps it's more of a short to mid-term solution and and not necessarily working as well in the long term. And that's why most the, the large majority of all the best athletes seem to be following uh, these sort of prin- sorts of principles that we've been talking about, because to be the best of the best, it requires successful training over the long term and not just over the short term so so that's uh, but I, th- I think it was important to to get that question and i getting steven to play devil's advocate there because it does come up a lot and i'll actually try to talk a little bit more about that specific question and topic in the next episode so stay tuned for that final takeaway this model does fit in very very well with what the best coaches and the triathlon coaches here in the world are doing and uh, i want to point you to some of the most popular and best episodes that i've had on the podcast in, in my opinion the, the best and most useful ones and download numbers seem to support that i'm thinking specifically of uh, interviews with uh, joel filial and Adil Twiten. those were episodes 172 for joel filial and uh, 154 for Adil Twiten. And, uh, and you can listen to those, re-listen to those, and, and the principles are exactly the same. Uh, a lot of training, a lot of easy training, building that aerobic engine. And the important thing isn't what you call it, so Joel wouldn't call, call what they're doing polarized training, and I probably wouldn't call it polarized either. Maybe it's p- pyramidal, maybe it's just <laughs> endurance training. Uh, it's all just semantics at the end of the day, but, uh, but what they're doing, fits very nicely with what these concepts that we, and principles that we talked about here, what, what they are. So, so that's, those are recommended episodes to listen to again and see how they fit in with, with this view. Uh, so that's about it for the takeaways. As usual, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com and a link to uh, the related episodes, including Ariel Twighten, Joel Filial, also, my episode that I did on uh, Siler's hierarchy of endurance training needs back in episode 120, I did a review of that presentation that Stephen held, which has become very famous and uh, is a really good one. So go and check that out, episode 120. And I'll also link to plenty of the best research papers that Stephen and his colleagues have, have done, uh, including several of the ones that we talked about, mentioned specifically, like the the case study with uh, with the cross-country skier and uh, and plenty of other ones, the recovery uh, from zone one versus zone two versus zone three, etc. So as I alluded to, actually, in the next episode, I will keep talking about polarized training, but it will be a solo episode because there were so many questions that we could barely scratch the surface today. So next week, I'll come back and try to answer a lot of these questions myself. And I'll also talk a bit more about my own perspectives on polarized training and, and maybe even my own training and how it fits in with this model. If you're new to the podcast, please make sure that you subscribe so that you get that episode and all the other ones when they are released and don't miss any of the goodies that we have coming out here. There will be plenty of really great episodes uh, coming out in the coming weeks. I'll, I can assure you that. And if you're a long-time listener and you haven't yet rated and reviewed the podcast, please, please, please go and do that. It really helps a lot. Uh, I want to thank everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast. It is making a difference. I'm noticing it because there are slightly more reviews coming in and then the download numbers are growing, which is essential for the sustainability of this podcast. So, uh, So please please help out with those ratings and reviews. It is massively appreciated and needed. And of course, spread the word. Just talk to your triathlon buddies, your family members, anybody who might be interested in listening to the podcast. Tell them to, to subscribe and start listening. Start binging on the uh, the content that we have in the archives because there are plenty of episodes by now to, to sink your teeth into. Big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. And thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. You can get your first box of Precision Hydration electrolytes for free with the promo code that triathlon show all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.